The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Welcome, everyone. I see so many people here. As you probably have guessed, we have a guest speaker tonight. Um, Kevin Griffin is in town to uh, lead a retreat with Judith Regeer at Thousand Water Den Center over in St. Paul starting tomorrow night. Some of you maybe are taking that retreat. And Kevin's also giving a public talk at Thousand Water on Sunday morning. And you can get more information from the Thousand Water website about that. Do you know what time it is on Sunday morning, the public talk? Yeah, somewhere around there. I'm not sure if it's exactly at 9 or if that's when the sit is and the talk's a little later. But uh, Kevin is, uh, has become a well-known teacher around the country, has been teaching for a while in the Bay Area. But uh, a number of years ago, maybe three years ago, he his book got published, One Breath at a Time, Buddhism and the, tw- and the Twelve Steps. And uh, since that time, Kevin has been traveling and teaching at uh, a number of the different Buddhist centers around the country. And we're really fortunate to have him back here again. Kevin has written a couple other books. He's trying to get one published uh, for children, actually. So he has a nine-year-old daughter, Graham, who he's testing it on. He was telling me earlier. <laughs> that was great. Just kind of watching his daughter to see if it needs to be revised. So why don't you just, what's it, do you have a working title for the book? It's called Escape from Nalanda. Escape from Nalanda, which is an ancient Buddhist university in India. So he's using sort of Buddhist history for the context of the book. So thanks so much for coming, yeah. Kevin, coming out a day early. And we get to hang out for a little bit together. So that's a real treat for me and for Wynn. Yeah, Robin, would you turn the fans on? They're just inside on the, well, actually, maybe it's easier. And if it feels stuffy, just open the windows a little bit more. So um, people don't realize we'll have a reception tonight at 9 o'clock after the talk and discussion. So if you'd like to stay around and have some tea, possibly meet Kevin. And also there's some books, and I'll talk more about them at the end of the talk. Thanks, Mark. Um, I'm really grateful that you allow me to invite myself to come and (laughs) teach you. (laughs) As you were describing the book, I was thinking, it's for alcoholic children. (laughs) Maybe it should be. great to be back here, and I'm, I'm guessing this will be the last time I'll get to teach in this room. Mm-hmm. Next time, uh, it'll be in the new space. Uh, it's wonderful that Common Ground is going to have a, a new home. And plus, you're going to have uh, fried potatoes. And <laughs> you scraped all those off of the floor already. Breakfast, <laughs> breakfast anytime. Uh, I... Uh, I have been um, working lately on um, doing some writing and teaching around uh, focusing on the God idea, uh, particularly as it relates to the 12 steps. And and um, it, it it seems that I've sort of I've, uh, it's happening. I'm, I happen to be doing this at the time when when uh, God has become uh, quite a topic in the 
popular culture uh, as well. It seems like Christopher Hitchens has been everywhere in the last three days. Um, if I only could have such a press when my next book comes out. Um, And so uh, I don't know. I, I assume that everyone here isn't just uh, isn't necessarily in a 12-step program, and, I, and I'm not. And I meant to make this a talk that's uh, accessible for people who aren't in a 12-step program. Um, but I will use some references to 12-step uh, programs just uh, as a way of um, talking about some of these ideas. I think when most people come to uh, to Buddhism in the West, we think that we are getting away from God. So uh, I apologize for um, you know forcing him upon you again. Um, actually, I've, I've taken to calling God it, um, which is actually I find that just by saying it when I refer to God, it, it changes my whole understanding, my, my perspective. Um, but just to start, uh, I'll give you uh, some quotes from two really uh, highly respected Theravadan Buddhist monks, contrasting quotes. The first is from uh, Wapola Rahula, who wrote What the Buddha Taught, which is a contemporary in 20th century uh, commentary on Theravadan teachings and uh, really kind of one of the uh, kind of Theravadan 101 books that we get when you when you sign up to be a Buddhist around here. And, and this is what he says about God. He says, for self-protection, man has created God on whom he depends for his own protection, safety, and security, just as a child depends on its parent. According to Buddhism and our ideas of God and according to Buddhism, our ideas of God and soul are false and empty. And I, I would take that that was certainly my uh, understanding when I got involved with Buddhist teachings. And I think it's a common common understanding. A couple of years ago, I was on a um, family retreat at Spirit Rock in, in Northern California, and um, Ajahn Amaro, who's a Theravadan monk, was there teaching. And in the afternoon when the kids were off on, when they're, um, with their groups and their counselors, there was a, a circle of parents with Ajahn Amaro, and actually there was a grandparent there who had no background in Buddhism. And she was just there supporting her son and her grandson. And she asked Ajahn Amaro the, the basic question that people really who are very new to Buddhism or have no experience would ask, which is, is, is there a god in Buddhism or what's the Buddhist belief in God? And Ajahn Amaro's response was, Buddhism is all about God. <laughs> so it's interesting to find that two really authoritative uh, monastics uh, take these different viewpoints. So who's right? We'll decide that tonight. <laughs> well, I think it's 
the, the issue in, in terms of that question, and, and I think largely also in the problem that goes on uh, with the sort of the divide we seem to have in our culture now between um, you know, believers and non-believers uh, that seems to really be getting uh, really highlighted is it's I think the problem is one of uh, definition how we define God and um, the mistakes we make in in defining God on the one hand and then the uh, uh, just sort of the unwillingness to accept that definition on the other hand uh, did you turn this thing on I think I did. Oh, too bad. <laughs> well, anyway, it's okay. Something's happening. Oh, oh, sorry. We can always erase it. <laughs> so uh, to to uh, arbitrate this. You know, conflict between these monks. Fortunately, they—I don't think they've ever met. So, uh, and I'm sure there would be no problem because monks don't get like that. <laughs> if I were there, I would try to cause trouble. But anyway, um, we can turn to Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who was uh, one of the great uh, Thai masters of the 20th century, uh, and who was very interested in in looking for the core principles uh, inside religions, within religions, and that, that, um, that could potentially bring some understanding uh, between religions. And he uh, talks about how the understanding that, God, that most of us have of God is what he calls a, a childish understanding. Uh, he calls. He talks about the God of people language, and uh, I'll, I'll read a little bit of what he has to say. As long as people insist that God is a person in the conventional sense of people language, they will say we, we can say that they will not know the real God, which in turn leads to proselytizing, disagreements, clashes, and conflicts. The intellectuals will increasingly deny this ordinary kind of God, and it will not be very long before people educated in the modern way will have eliminated God from their hearts altogether. Now, this is this is the problem we we have, and and I, I imagine that many of you have gone through uh, some some if if, not, if you're not still there uh, in your life of of kind of turning against this kind of uh, people language idea of a God that you know, prefers certain people or uh, blesses certain countries. You know, it's when it gets down to the sports teams that it really starts to get a little absurd. You know, I, 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 you know you'll hear an athlete talking about how uh, the people back in Texas, because that's where they always are, by the way, but um, are, you know, from his hometown, uh, from his church, you're all prayed for his team, and that's why they won, and they had God on their side. And I'm always thinking, well, well what, what about the other guys that were praying? So their prayers weren't good enough? What was wrong with their They didn't say the magic words, or they didn't have the right pipeline to God, and 
you know, it turns into this really kind of absurd uh, idea that, that really, if you are educated in the modern way, which apparently three of our Republican candidates are not, because they don't believe in evolution, which is considered part of the edu modern edu education. If you are educated in the modern way, um, you know, you're going to reject ideas like this. I mean, it's all very well when you're a kid and, you know, you believe in Santa Claus and God, you know, sure. But uh, pretty much by the time you are a sophomore in college, you're, you know better. So it's, I think it's quite natural and I think wise to reject that kind of a, a view of God. Uh, that, that view of God is a destructive, ultimately destructive view, just as, as um, Buddhadasa says, uh, leads to conflicts uh, and, um, and, you know, horrors committed in the name of God. Because essentially what we're talking about then is just a, a projection, a human projection, onto how we would like the creator of the universe to behave so that he or she, depending on your, your gender choice, would act out what you would really do if you were in that position, basically. So it just acts out your own prejudices. So this is a totally unacceptable um, view of God and one that should be rejected. But if we stop there, uh, we're left with something kind of dry. Um, this is from actually Ajahnamro, just a description of a, a workshop he's leading, or he led recently. Um, he, said, uh, he says, in, in the West, many people are disappointed both with materialism and theistic religions. To them, Buddhism has great appeal, but lacking any fundamental sense or faith in the transcendent, the practice of Buddhism easily becomes a dry, almost technically technical procedure, intellectually and psychologically satisfying, but strangely sterile as well. Sometimes I, I've had that sense about our practice um, that it can be pretty dry. Um, so let me t talk. Let me take a little bit more from Ajahn Buddhadasa to try to get at something, um, hopefully deeper about God than this superficial view. Buddhadasa says every religion has something that can be called God. But some religions talk about their God only in terms of Dharma language. Thus it appears that those religions have no God, and, thus, and so they are classified as non-theistic religions. Buddhism and Jainism are religions of this type. Another group of religions mostly uses easily understandable conventional language when talking about God, and so they are classified as theistic religions. Christianity, Hinduism, and Islam are examples of this type. Religions of this latter group have very profound things to say about God in terms of Dharma language, but they are hidden under the outer shell and form of those religions. The classification of religions into two groups, non-theistic and theistic, is a superficial classification that does not touch the real essence or meaning of religion. Now, he, Buddhadasa, his use of the word religion, he's speaking in Thai, and, and the, uh, the Thai word for religion isn't quite the same as ours, so uh, 
I would I would prefer it as touching the essence of spirituality or just the essence. But uh, the point uh, is an important one, I think, uh, to see that what we're defining as God isn't isn't on this superficial level, and that that what God really is. And when Ajahnamaro says Buddhism is all about God, this is what he's talking about something something deeper than that. Um, there are a couple of uh, streams and kind of. Uh, ways to look then at this. So I want to talk sort of about a kind of Buddhist definition of God. So get to the heart of this. But uh, I'm mostly interested in the practical level of this. Um, When when Ajahnamaro talks about the transcendent, he talks about ultimate truth, um, that's a hard place to go. in terms of really saying much about that. Um, although I think that uh, this is where uh, probably the most profound things can be said about God. Um, and yet, they are so, that experience is so personal that to talk about it is almost. Um, I'm not sure how helpful it is. And in any case, I don't feel qualified to talk about it in a skillful way. So let me leave it at that. Um, but now I'm going to, I want to come back to the 12 steps uh, because it's because of the 12 steps that I actually got into this subject at all. I would have been just as happy to be another non-theistic Buddhist uh, if I hadn't uh, had to get uh, sober and then uh, deal with these 12 steps that talk about God. The third step says that we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And this is the step where a lot of people coming out of a Buddhist background or a non-theistic background uh, either rebel or uh, just struggle. And so... So I, uh, my my concern is a practical one. How can I how can I work this step? But I will say for the general Buddhist public that this idea of turning our will and our lives over to something is not at all alien to Buddhism. I would say I would like to I think it's reasonable to claim that when we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. This is essentially what we're doing. We're turning our will and our lives over. So first, let let me talk about what turning our will and our lives over might mean. Um, In Buddhism, will is typically talked about as intention. So if we turn our intention over to Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, then we are trying to live in harmony with that, live in harmony with Buddha, which represents the awakened mind, the awakened state, the just presence, uh, the one who knows, as Ajahn Chah says, live in harmony with the truth of the way things are, which is, again, how Ajahn Chah defines uh, Dharma, um, and live in harmony with the, the spiritual community, 
the sangha. So this is this is, uh, I think, what refuge is. I think it's turning our will and our life over. Turning our will is the intention to do that. Turning our life over is acting from that intention. So it's right action. You have right intention and right action, which are two aspects of the Eightfold Path. So this is just one way of kind of drawing that connection between what this third step is saying. So uh, while it's framed in this um, kind of Protestant Christian language, it's I think it's pretty clear that it's saying the same thing that we say when we say, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, which is what uh, many of us here have done many times. Um, it's a regular part of practice and uh, a regular part of the, certainly the monastic life. So when we say we're turning our will and our life over to the care of God, you know, what does that, what does that mean then besides, okay, taking refuge okay we've drawn a parallel but then ultimately what what is that how can we how can we say that there's God because in the steps what it says the steps begin by saying that we're powerless over alcohol right or drugs or whatever your addiction is uh, and there are some Buddhist parallels to that which uh, um, we could just start by saying we're powerless over our karmic stream or our uh, we can say we're powerless over the the mind stream thoughts and, and emotions that just keep coming which doesn't mean that we can't uh, do something about them right now but that their arrival we can't kind of uh, change change what caused them to arrive we can only change things now which will then change future arrivals thought or non-thought arrivals. So, the, so there's, we start from this stance of powerlessness uh, and the second step says that we're going to need, uh, that there, there, there may be some other power that we can draw upon and this is why then we turn to God in the third step which is again why we turn to Buddha Dharma Sangha because we recognize that our own uh, small self, ego-driven uh, reactive self doesn't make good decisions makes decisions based on greed hatred and delusion and that as long as we're acting on greed hatred and delusion we're just cre keep creating more destructive karma so so the third step then we we try to uh, harmonize ourselves with this higher power as it's called uh, in the steps and uh, I think it's useful to you the term higher power I think is useful because it points to the fact that there's an energy or in what we're, what I'm calling God one of the prime forces of energy that uh, we turn our will and our lives over to is the, the law of karma the law of cause and effect so the law of cause and effect is something that is everywhere we can't escape it there's no way we can step outside the law of karma and this is exactly how God was defined to me as a little Catholic boy when they said God is everywhere and God knows everything which I thought was totally insane and you know I, I sort of tried to imagine this you know, million-headed 
monster and all these eyes that could kind of sneak around and see everything, but still wasn't quite satisfying. When we get rid of the idea of a being or, or a, even a human being like God and see that, think of God as an it and see that karma is an aspect of God, then we can see that God is everywhere and God knows everything because karma is everywhere and karma knows everything. It's, ne it's never out of effect. This is a power greater than ourselves. We can't fight it. We can fight with it, but we cannot overcome it. Um, it's not. It doesn't have the uh, sort of uh, glory of the Sistine Chapel. You know, this sort of beauty. You know, there isn't sort of an image that we can associate so much with it. But it's very much God, as far as I'm concerned, an aspect of God. Buddha Dasa talks about God as having four aspects. It says that God is nature. It's just everything there is. And one of the things he says is that the way things are is the will of God. So uh, the, our, you know, our responsibility is to accept that because there's really nothing you can do about it. Um, again, I, I, when, it, when I say that, I don't mean to say that you can't act or that you don't have there isn't some power, that we don't have some power ourselves. I just mean that, you know, there are trees and there are uh, rivers and these things are, and, and you're not going to change all that. Part of nature is also humans, obviously, and also consciousness. So there's nature and then the laws of nature, the second aspect. So the law, karma is one of the laws of nature. And so the, the typical definition of God is mostly the laws of nature. I'd say the, more, the most obvious uh, aspect of Dharma God is, is the laws of nature. And so some of the other laws of nature in Buddhist terms are things like the truth of impermanence. Again, a power greater than ourselves that we can't fight with. We, we can't change it. We do fight with it all the time. We forget it all the time. We wish it would go away. We pretend it's not there, you know, but it always arrives. Right? It's, it's, it is always there. And so we, ha we have a choice in terms of how we relate to this. Um, the, th the three characteristics, impermanence, suffering, and not self, or corelessness, are, are three really important aspects of the laws of nature that we, uh, again, they are more powerful than us. They, we can't change them. And, they, and we have to find a way to relate to them. And I would say that when we are not um, in harmony, when, when we are um, struggling with these, we are fighting God, basically. The third, qual the third aspect of higher power that Buddha Dasa talks about is the, re the responsibility or the duty of human beings in relation to the laws of nature. And this is where turning our will and our lives over to this comes into play. 
So we have a choice. We can try to get around the laws of karma. And certainly everybody's done things that were unskillful in their lives and, and uh, done things that led to harm. And I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, have done things that we thought we got away with. <coughs> but, you know, the law of karma basically says that you, you don't get away with anything. And it just may appear that you do, but um, you know the effects just aren't arriving right now. So living living in harmony, or, uh, I prefer uh, rather than saying our duty in relation to the uh, law of na laws of nature, I like to say living in harmony with the laws of nature. When we are living in harmony, that means we are following the five precepts, for instance, and we are accepting of impermanence. We, are, we realize that's just the way things are. We aren't kind of running from that or trying to change it. When, when there is suffering, we aren't shocked. We understand this is part of life. You know, the, I remember hearing uh, a woman on the radio a couple years ago whose son had been killed in Iraq and she and she, she was saying obviously she was very upset she said I, I never thought he would get killed I, I never thought this would happen I, you know my husband or my father went to World War two and he came back and my husband went to Vietnam and he came back I, I, I just was sure my son would come back and I just thought how how could you think that I mean that's just such you know, delusion. It's it's not recognizing suffering and impermanence. I mean, you know, we're all going to die, and and if we're in a war zone, we're much more likely to. So, you know, I my daughter's nine years old. I I am always expecting her to you know not come home from school every day. I'm just I ponder impermanence maybe too much, but um, you know, it's just such a a natural thing, and and we create such pain for ourselves. You know, the, the story of the 95-year-old you know, woman who's lying on her deathbed and the doctor comes over to her and she looks up to him, at him and says, why me? <laughs> but we, you know, if we don't really contemplate and, and open ourselves to this truth, this is where we wind up. Why me? Why am I dying? This is so strange. I'm so surprised. Uh, but it's interesting that Buddha Dasa puts this, this relationship of uh, having to, needing to live in harmony with the laws of nature as being an aspect of God. But really, there's this wholeness, this, this completeness that uh, he creates with this idea of God that, that um, well, it's, it's inherently moral, but it's also, uh, there's no separateness, although there is a relationship between the, uh, the human individual and 
the laws of nature, we are not separate from the laws of nature. Where, how can I say that karma is not inside me or that impermanence is not inside me? Those, uh, that I'm just part of this thing that, and, and I am both uh, made of and, and expressing those, those realities. So the final uh, aspect that Buddhadasa talks about of God is uh, what he calls the uh, fruits of living in harmony with the, with the laws of nature. And this is what, when the step says, we turn our will and our life over to the care of God, that's what it's talking about. It's not that we just turn ourselves over to God and say, I hope, you know, I hope if I do this that you know, he will decide that I'm worthy of getting something, but rather that we see that if we live in harmony, if we live uh, a skillful life, if we live a compassionate life, if we live a life of, of service, of non-harming, of generosity, that and of wisdom, that we will be okay. Um, it's going to say that we will be taken care of. But it's not necessarily that. Because living in harmony with the laws of nature doesn't mean you don't get to suffer. It, what it to, means to me is that when I'm suffering, I'm not confused about that. When I'm dying, I'm not confused about that. And so then one of the other powers of God which is mindfulness, I can apply to having an experience and, it, and transforming that experience. And this is where uh, the, the nature of God is, uh, there are these different, different um, Directions, let me say that that the the power this, the, the power of God works. I can live in harmony with the law of karma, but it's hard for me to exactly cultivate. I can't change the law of karma, but I can cultivate mindfulness. This is I, I this isn't uh, the subtleties of this can be debated for sure. But the, the important point to me is that because I am part of God. Since I am part of nature, I also have, have access to the power of God. And one of the greatest powers of God is awareness. That's Buddha, you know, the Buddha means awake. That's what Buddha called himself. You know, he, he didn't call himself God. He called himself awake. Um, so if I cultivate awakeness, what happens is that my experience of just my experience is transformed. My experience of my experience. Um, for anyone who's sat, for instance, with knee pain and brought powerful mindfulness and attention and concentration to that pain and seen it dissolve or seen it just open up into a softening and, and allowing in which there was no more resistance, we see that mindfulness itself 
has a powerful transforming effect on our experience. So this is part of the care of God or the fruits of living in harmony with higher power and in fact cultivating these qualities. Um, so this is uh, really just a, a summation in a way, but it, it's also uh, really just a piece. Uh, I, is, this is something that I am, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I've explored it pretty much, but I, every time I talk about it, I feel like there's so much I don't know and there's so much more to think about. Uh, but what, as I said before, I'm not, because I'm not even really going into the more subtle aspects of what we would call God or, or the ultimate truth. Um, I have a poem, but maybe I don't. I usually have it. There's a great Kabir poem that sums this up. And, uh, well, it's probably on the one page I'm not looking at. Well, in any case, the, the mystics are really uh, the people who can kind of give us... Um, a more transcendent view of God. And uh, I'll just say that in the silence of meditation and in the emptiness we can touch, this is the place where we can touch what, what I call the being God. So a lot of what I've been talking about is what I call the doing God. There's kind of the active uh, principle of God, and then there's the non-active principle or the being quality of God. And Kabir calls this the breath inside the breath. Um, Ajahn Chah talks about still flowing water. It's not water that's still flowing, it's still flowing water. And both of these, I think, are pointing to this uh, underlying ultimate reality that is the direct touching the direct touching of God I'll say just to put it simply and having that experience that touching is the place where really um, inspiration and faith and trust in the path is developed and, and really inspired. It's really cultivated from that place. But it's never been enough for me <laughs> to have that because I, that's why I like the pra- I want a practical God. I want to, if, if God isn't going to be useful to me, then I sort of feel like why bother? Um, so I hope this is useful to you in some way, and um, I will 
open this up for any thoughts or questions or corrections. person, why is that so important? Spokes, almost like a spokesperson or an uh, icon. Or yeah, a, and it's the person we always say, oh, the Buddha said this, and so, right. it, so it must be true. Um, so did people get the drift of that question back there? Yeah. Um, I think it's a, it's a really good question, and I, and I don't know that I can give you, you know, the, the answer. Um, I can... Um, mull it over with you a little bit. Um, the Buddha didn't leave a successor. Um, like, you know, Jesus appointed Peter to be the, you know, you're the rock that I'll build my church upon, or however. Um, the Buddha said that um, the Dharma was what he was leaving behind, not, not some individual. So um, so I'm not sure he would approve of how we relate to the Buddha now. Um, so that's one thing. <laughs> Another thing is that I think in Asia, the Buddha has taken on very much the same role that Jesus has in Christianity as a figure of devotion. And I think that's because, well, I don't, I don't, one of the reasons I think that is, is because people, many people long for some human image to relate to, and they long for some, uh, something to 
to have faith in it and to turn their hearts over to. And, and it, it, many people respond to that faith element. And, and, and in Asia, Buddhism is much more of a faith religion than it is in the West. But, but those of us who are who sort of aren't in quite either of those camps who who like to quote the Buddha as an authority, I think that that comes partly out of um, wanting to it's always better when you quote somebody else <laughs> than when you quote yourself. Um, so it it gives you more authority. The the believers who I would uh, I would say the monastic I'd say the monastics that I know tend to be real believers in in the Buddha in the sense that he had a transcendent uh, insight and that because of the depth of his wisdom that he was. Um, a, a unique human being, basically, and that that there because in the Buddhist tradition there's the idea that Buddhas appear from time to time, and that a Buddha is a world teacher. A, a Buddha is not just enlightened. That that any of us have the potential to become enlightened, but to become a world teacher, we have to also develop for the ten paramitas, you know, to, to perfection become perfectly generous, perfectly mindful, perfectly confident, you know, and and that there's this, so that this, there's this tremendous respect, the sense that the Buddha went through many lifetimes developing all these qualities and then had this kind of shattering insight that then resulted in 45 years of teaching in detail about that insight and explaining it in many, many different ways. And the sense that this guy really knew what was going on, and, and that whether you feel a heart connection to that or just an intellectual connection to it, that he's the most trustworthy human source of wisdom. And I think that's where uh, those who, you know, th th that's the core for me about what that what that's about. The sense that this guy, it's not just somebody who gave a good Dharma talk. You know. um, now, that, you know, accepting that, um, the, the thing that is that the people that I know who, because uh, I don't feel, I, I'm not 100% there. I certainly lean in that direction. And I, I don't. There's no other direction I feel safe in leaning in. But the people that I see, people like uh, Biko Bodhi, is a good example of somebody who I think is is there. That, or Ajinamaro, that they don't arrive there through intellect. Through intellect, they arrive there through practice and having their own deep realization that shows them. The, the 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 truth of what the Buddha taught, and they and so they see through their own direct experience 
the power of the teachings. It's not that they just read it and went, wow, this is really cool, I'm going to believe in this guy and join the cult. You know, it's, it's very much through their own personal experience of the Buddha Dharma that they become inspired to, to fully embrace that. But that's not required for membership, you know, or for it being part. For that's just a, you know, I consider people like that lucky. Um, Lucky is a, you know, shorthand for they have different karmic results, but. but it certainly doesn't it doesn't need to stand in the way of of getting everything that you might want to get from Buddhism. I mean one of the things that I love about the Dharma is that you know it is so open that we can come and and take what's useful for us you know and and we don't have to swallow the whole thing whole or swallow the thing whole. Um, you know, similarly, you know, the 12-step programs don't even say that you have to be sober to come in. It says you have to, the, des- the desire to stop drinking is the requirement for membership of AA, you know. And it's kind of like the desire to grow spiritually, I'd say, is kind of the, or the desire to get rid of desire, I don't know. <laughs> the requirement for membership. So, hope that's helpful. Yeah. To me, I do still go to meetings, um, and I'll just say personally, um, I just still love the fellowship, and um, and from time to time, I'm also in a place where I really need to share in an AA meeting, and it's the only place where I know I can dump that stuff, and it w- I won't get in trouble, you know, I won't cause disharmony at home or uh, work or. Uh, but usually these days I do most of my sharing in this in this way, so I just dump on the sangha. <laughs> Fortunately, the sangha is big enough to absorb it all. Um, I, you know, one of the things that I've when my book came out, I, I or since it came out, I've wound up being um, kind of the focal point for a lot of what I call outsiders, 12-step outsiders, uh, people who didn't have the experience I had. I was actually, I, I kind of 
it took me a year to get into the program, but once I did, I kind of just did it and didn't really struggle with it that much. But a lot of people uh, talk to me about the struggles they've had, and and it's kind of reminded me and of the some of the problematic aspects of the program, particularly what I call the AA curses. When people say, if you don't go to meetings, you're going to drink. You know, or if you uh, date in your, you, know, you don't date in your first 12 months because then you're going to drink. Or if you don't work the fourth step, and I, I, you know, my response is, you know, if you put something, pick something up and pour it in your mouth, then you're probably going to drink. But, you know, other than that, there's no real saying. And and I think that's just magical thinking. And well, it's not entirely magical thinking. I, you know, the, you know, the program. Um, you know, has some really useful tools that work for some people, for many people. I th I guess what I'm getting at is you have to figure it out for yourself, and it sounds like you have, right? I mean, is that your is that your question? <laughs> Let's get married, yeah. Um, that that. Um, the the what I don't get in Buddhist in Buddhist circles is the community, largely. And that's one of the things that I think is missing. Not just community, but the intimacy uh, and, the, and the honesty. One of the th things, when you come around spiritual centers, a lot of times people feel they have to act spiritual. And so they try to hide their shadow side or their not maybe not even their shadow side. You know, maybe they don't. They hide the fact that they, you know, like to watch football on Sundays or something. You know, I mean, literally, that's what James Barrows, one of my teachers. You know, he kind of came out at one time. I love football. <laughs> um, sent ripples through the sun. I mean. But you know, this is, uh, and and I consider that a problem, and I, and I consider it a, a pretty serious problem. In fact, because I don't think if you can't be wholly yourself in a community, then the community is not working. And, and, and that happens just because, you know, Buddhism is new to the West and it's alien and we're all trying to figure out how do I be a Buddhist, you know. Uh, if, if you're raised in a culture, then you know how to be. You don't have to think about how to be. But people come in, oh, wow, where am I, how am I supposed to sit? You know, oh, all these people are meditating. They're so good at it, and I don't know what I'm doing. You know, all that stuff. But so Buddhism is still, we're still trying to figure out how to make it work in the West, which is one of the reasons I'm really happy to see that, you know, there are these Buddhist 12-step groups. I don't know that that's the solution, but that's one thing that's that's a nice connection because it's it's sort of saying let's let's take the best of both let's bring the because I certainly think that the serenity aspect and some of the wisdom aspects of Buddhism are missing from a lot of AA a, a lot of people in AA even though I think it's the potential is there and and the same applies in the the other side is for us to have more community and more open honesty in the community. Uh, so that's uh, that's another reason why I still kind of I still go to meetings and it and I can you know be a little bit more uh, relaxed about who I am in that in that context. But yeah, I mean I think we have to figure out for ourselves. Uh, uh, 
the, obviously the you know the benefit for an alcoholic of continuing to go to meetings is that we are reminded of our of the potential or, or what the what would happen what potentially could happen if we started to drink again and and it is not too difficult to kind of feel that we're really recovered we were talking about this last night at spirit rock but recovered versus in recovery um, but again I'm not I don't believe that there's a magical way that that works so, yeah yeah uh, that part you referred to about the, uh, the Buddhist community having to act right or being somewhat secretive different than in your 12-step um, A few of us got to talk to uh, a Luther seminary third fourth-year students about the 12 steps. Yeah. And when we finished telling our stories, then they, these students, they'd been out on what they call practice preaching, yeah. so they'd had some experience in congregation. And they really wanted the quality of what we described with the fellowships and the meetings. Yeah. And they saw that was never present you know, in their church as they grew up. Yeah. And it wasn't present in what they experienced. And, and they were very sincere. How can we get that in our congregation? So I think it's broader. Just yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. Well, right, and and it's it's that repression that winds up. It, it some of the people who suffer the most from it are the priests and Zen masters and you know meditation teachers who wind up you know acting unskillfully themselves, as some of you may know has happened in this very town. And certainly, um, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, Buddhism, real Buddhism, <laughs> emphasizes, you know, uh, skillful living, a moral moral living. But uh, as, it, as Buddhism came to the West, uh, we kind of left that out in the beginning. We kind of, it was this sort of Jack Kerouac Zen, you know. And anything goes kind of approach, and um, so again, the twelve steps are so ethically based they, that they really um, support that that development. And one of the things that I see about people who have a solid twelve-step program is that when they come to meditation, they can progress rapidly because they have the sila or the moral foundation uh, developed already um, it's such a core principle in the 12 steps you can't get very far you know when you write a, a searching and fearless moral inventory and then share it with somebody you know you really get to look at your stuff um, and and part of that you know part of what's why that works is because the 12-step community isn't judgmental you know when you walk into a, a room and you think oh my god you know I don't want people to know I'm an alcoholic. And then you realize, oh, everybody else in here is an alcoholic. There's nothing to hide. When you don't have that shame anymore, then being honest about what you know, who you are and, the, and the, the things you do, the mistakes you make, isn't such a problem. Um, you know, the, the Buddha said that a, 
a monk should be easy to admonish, which is very much like, you know, a searching and fearless moral inventory. We should be really willing to look at our mistakes, and it shouldn't be a problem. The, the, ultimately, the reason that doesn't have to be a problem is that when we see that what I'm trying to protect by being dishonest is not really who I am, and it's not, it's not real. That ego is just this construct, and I see I don't have to protect that, then it's not such a problem to be honest, because there's nothing to kind of, oh, what, you know, what, you, what am I embarrassed about? It's just I'm human. There's this, this process that's happening that's, that's got a personality and a form and, and uh, you know, does stuff, and you can't really, uh, you know, pin something on it, because it's not pinnable. Um, and, and when we do this process in the 12 steps, the inventory and then the sharing of the inventory, one of the things we see is that we're, we are not unique in our flaws. And if you go to a couple hundred AA meetings, you start to see that you aren't unique. You know, it's like you've heard everything you've ever done and more. And so there's really nothing to hide. And, and I think that's a really helpful uh, breakthrough to have in terms of, of uh, really being open and being able to be intimate and honest about, about ourselves. So um, we are going to have a little time to just hang out. And uh, so let's just have a moment for dedication of merit. As we come together to contemplate the Dharma and to cultivate the qualities of wakefulness and kindness, we see that because we are connected with all that is, our efforts can be of benefit to all beings. In that spirit, we dedicate the merit of our efforts this evening to the awakening of all beings. May all beings be free from addiction, the sufferings of addiction. May all beings be free from all suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.